The following is a sermon from the Vicar at Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. You from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as we've been going through these Genesis narratives from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25, there's some stories that lead us to leave here really strong and really valiant. Then there's some stories that we've been reading in the past couple of Sundays that lead us to wonder, what's going on? What's the plan? What was Sodom and Gomorrah? going to see today is another one of those stories where at first it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of things that make a lot of sense to us. But what we're going to see from this lesson of scripture is that God really does have a plan for his people and it works in ways that we might not expect. So we'll read. I'll invite you to open up your bulletins to page number 10. And if you're at home, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21 and we'll verses 8 to 21. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So early in the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, His mother got a wife for him from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I've heard the news. There's stabbings on the subway. Education in our schools are in crisis. I've been hearing about missiles that have been flying over countries over in Asia and over in Europe. And after you read some of these news for about a week or a week on, and then for some of us, maybe years and years on, these different headlines that say murders in this neighborhood, crime in this neighborhood, broken promises over here, no one's got a plan, no one's got an idea about what's going on. I start to think to yourself those same thoughts. 
Does anyone really have an idea of what's going on? Does anyone really have a plan for what's going on in this world? What most poses today in Genesis 21 is one of those stories where it seems like no one has any plan of what's going on. And it seems so fast that we can't hardly keep up. And he shows us a difficult scene at the dinner table with Abraham and Sarah, but also a really disturbing scene out in the desert with Hagar and Ishmael. But what we're going to see today is from these stories, we are going to say, see that really God has a plan for his people. And the party started out great. The feast was great. The whole family was amazing. That everyone had taken their spot, the conversation was lively, the environment around it, the whole ambiance was great. The parents were talking, the children were having fun. Sarah even heard some of the children were laughing over at the side, at their side of the table. So Sarah picked up her eyes, she looked over from her plate a little bit to see what the kids were doing, and she was greeted with the sight of Ishmael, this 14-year-old teenager, teasing the boy who's supposed to be the guest of honor at the, at the dinner today. Isaac is receiving all the brunts of the jokes from the always joke-telling Ishmael. You're what we waited for, huh? Isaac, this tiny little father of nations, you're what we waited for. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah had to wait for you, and this is all you've got. Sarah sees this scene and she is just absolutely horrified that Isaac is the brunt of Ishmael's always coming jokes. And she's seen this before. She's seen this pattern happening with Ishmael for a while now. So she finally snaps. She turns over to Abraham and says, you need to get rid of this slave woman right now. I don't want to see them ever again. I want these two out of here. Look at how... Sarai treats Hagar. If you read in these verses, in verse 10, get rid of slave woman and her son. What Sarah is doing is she is singling Hagar out to being just another slave woman. She's just another person. That person over there, she is one of them. Ever be around us anymore. And we know that Sarah and Hagar have had a little bit of history. We write about what happened in Genesis 16, too. And we can, we can probably surmise that from, from those interactions between those two, that there's been a little bit of beef brewing between these two for the past decade or so. And that this isn't just a one-time shot for Sarah, that she has thought and said these words about Hagar either. And how she says these words affects how Abraham thinks about her, how Ishmael thinks about Isaac, how this family talks about each other and talks to each other, really, it might just be too simple to say this, but it's absolutely true. How they talk about each other affects how other people think about other people in the family too. Some days I really do hate my family. Maybe that's a statement that you have whispered to yourself before. Maybe that's something that you've shouted to the rooftops so that someone could possibly hear you. For a lot of people in this world, this dinner scene that we read in the scriptures isn't just a one-time occurrence. It might just be an reality some. And with what we hear about bullying happening in schools and with what we hear about all the things that happen online with people's self-esteem and self-emotions and how they think about themselves, 
when they get all this bullying and teasing at school and outside of the home, all they want is to find a little bit of protection at home. But when that nick, when bullying and when that tease comes from the people they are supposed to trust, you can see how that's a difficult situation. We hear about in schools and education, all the bullying, you would think that kids just want to find some respite at home. But it shouldn't surprise that, that even in ancient Israel, teenagers were trying to find a way to one-up their siblings, and parents were trying to way, find a way to make sure that they were still on top. Maybe you guys have seen this dinner scene take place at your own dinner table, or maybe you've seen it happen plenty of times on TV. Maybe it'll happen around Thanksgiving or Christmas time or Easter or a quinceanera or something like that. And you see, and the whole family's been invited. All the uncles and aunts and the cousins are around. The food's been ready. Everything's calm, cool, and collected just as grandma and grandpa had imagined it. It's all fun and games and the meal is going great. Finally, this family reunion is going awesome. All the way until that one cousin lobs an unflattering comment at another cousin, and then the whole situation deteriorates. Feelings are pushed out. Emotions are worn on their sleeves. There starts to be other comments directed at other people. The whole situation deteriorates. Arguments start. Families want to pack up their cars, and families just want to go. Maybe you've seen this situation play out at your own house. Maybe you've seen the situation play out on TV too. But feelings get messy. Feelings get hurt. And maybe you've heard this one before, but family life is tricky. Family life is difficult. And what we know is that family life is a training ground for faith, for hope, for love, and how people interact with each other. And how we talk about our family members and how we treat our family members, that affects everyone. And that makes an impact. And Sarah shows exactly how she thinks of hers. And she snaps and she tells Abram that, that she doesn't want to see this slave woman. And she doesn't want to see her son ever again. This might seem difficult and this might seem messy at first. But we have to remember that God has a plan for his people. And that included letting this situation play out. And that includes God's solution that we read already, that he is going to have to create these people for a while. And that even though this plan is going to break apart a family, there's going to be a good and there's going to be a glorious purpose that comes out of it. And sure, it looks like an absolute mess right now. But out of this situation, there's going to be something very good that happens for it. Because there's a lot more at stake here than just having a good family dinner or having a good family relationship here. If you remember, Ishmael is the firstborn son. And the firstborn gets all of the inheritance rights in this culture, which means that he is first in line to receive all of the things that Abraham was promised and all of those blessings that he was promised. So if Ishmael stays here, he's technically in line to receive those blessings. So Sarah has every single right to be curious and every single right to be a little bit worried about what this kid could possibly do to his, her, to, to her son, because the promise is supposed to go through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And so Sarah has every right to want to separate this. And she has every single right to be worried about what could possibly happen for her son and the well-being of Isaac in this situation. 
in this tense and in this difficult moment, this is where God wanted to work. And this is where God wanted to show his grace. And he wanted to show that he had a plan for his people. So he tells Abraham, do it. Do what your wife has just told you to do. Even though it seems like a mess, even though you're worried about it, go ahead and do it. I will provide for them. So Abraham does it. And he sends them off with what appears to be very little, just a little bit of food, just a little bit of water on their backs. And he sends them off just like that into the because he knows that God is going to provide for them. And he is going to be, he is confident that God is going to provide for everything that they need. But that doesn't change the fact still that Isaac has lost his big brother, Ishmael. That Abraham has just had to say goodbye to his firstborn son, Ishmael. And now what we see here is we see a single mother who has been abandoned by her family, not necessarily abandoned, but left behind by her family. And she has to wander in the desert to try and find her own way. And with the weight of the world on her shoulders and all of her thoughts to process and cycle through about how she found herself in this situation, again, she loses her way. She was supposed to head south, but apparently in this text, it says that she lost her way. And then all what she, in her, in her confusion and in her misdirection of where she was supposed to go, she finally just has to take a break. There's no more water left in her skin of water. And she has to leave her boy underneath the bush just to find a little bit of shade. But she decides that this is all too much. And she has to leave the boy behind the bush and right under the bush so that she doesn't have to see him eventually go and die. The fate that was written on the sand for those two at that moment. Hagar is walking in a wasteland in the desert, and she doesn't have any sense of direction on where the, she's supposed to go. And unfortunately for a lot of people in this world today too, that's how they feel too. No one cares about me. No one knows where I'm going. No one cares what direction I'm going. Your wasteland might not look a lot like Hagar's, but living paycheck to paycheck can feel that way sometimes. It's dizzying makes us feel delirious. There's a lot of things that we can, we don't know exactly what's going to happen week after week. We don't know what's going to happen in 10 or 15 days from now. It's not necessarily dry and arid out here on Roosevelt Avenue either. But I know for a fact that there's not a lot of places that you can find on this street that are going to give you the peace and tranquility that you really want. There's a lot of places in this world and a lot of places in the neighborhoods that promise relief and respite from all the troubles of this world. I can get you to a better future. All I need is your vote by November. There's a lot of places that say you can just find a little bit of relief right here for 15 to 20 minutes. Just come in, just have a drink, just come on in and stay a while. Let's see what can happen after that. Hagar is walking in a wasteland with no sense of direction. But like every dehydrated traveler knows as they're walking through the sands of the Sahara, some of the oases and some of the places that look like you're going to be able to get cool drinks of water are just mirages. They're just flashes in the pan. They're not going to actually bring the relief that they're looking for. Here's a truth that I know you've probably heard but needs to be restated. 
where God appears to be most hidden is where he is on most, where he is on display the most. Let me say that again. Where God appears to be most hidden is where he is most on display. What I'm talking about here is I am talking about what we call our theology of the hidden God, where God appears to hide his glory behind ordinary and just simple things, where he hides his glorious, his marvelous, all-powerful glory behind just simple, unbecoming things, things that can look completely damaging, things that can look like death. Here in the scriptures today, we have a scene that looks terrible from the outside. We have a mother who has had to leave her child just about a distance away that she can see him finally tip over when he succumbs to dehydration, but far enough away that she isn't going to be able to hear her screams. It's a terrible situation that we have here in the scriptures. The out in the wilderness, out of water, that is exactly where God wanted them to be. Because that is where God was going to show them his grace. Because even though it appeared that God was hiding, God was always there. God was in control. And God was about to show them an abundance of absolute grace. But here's a hard truth, too, that we need to realize. We have to trust that what God says and does, he does in a glorious way. Even if it appears that everything is full of ugliness, sin, and death should say that again too. We have to trust that what God speaks and what he does, he does so in a glorious way, even if it appears to be completely damaging and full of death on the outside to us. In the papers and online, you'll hear about all these murders and crimes and ugliness that's going on in the world. There was a bunch of sin and there was a bunch of shame. There was a bunch of murder and there was a bunch of crime that was happening when Jesus had to go to the cross too to pay for all of the crimes that he committed. When he went up to Golgotha, when he had his hands ripped in two, when he took on all of the sin of the world upon that cross, in something that seemed so vicious, so final, something that never could have, we thought could never could have happened. That is where God was on his display the most, where his power was shown the most where his hit, this hidden God came down to us in flesh and showed his glory the most to us. Jesus was put on the cross to die for all of our sins, to save us from all the ugliness of the world and all the ugliness of our sins. God heard the woman who needed to be heard, and God had seen the boy who needed to be seen. And out here in the desert, he gives them exactly what they need. He hears the groans and the cries of the boy and all those rock, those mocking ridicules that he heard in his house. They've changed the prayers they heard in his father's house too. And Hagar needed something to drink. She needed something to cool her down. She needed something to give her life. And that's exactly what the Lord gave her too. A drink of water from the well and a saving word to get her through it too. Just as he heard the groans of Hagar and Ishmael, so too does he hear yours. When we say that God is hidden in this world, that doesn't mean he's actively hiding either. He's always been in control. He's eager to hear. He's eager to be listening to you. He's eager to provide you what you need. Hagar, and we need God's son. 
to pay for all of the sins that we've committed in this world. And that's exactly what he did. He sent his son to pay for exactly what we needed. He paid for all the punishment that we deserved. He paid for all the sins we commit. And that's what God did for us because that's exactly what we needed from God. The story shows that God desires to be the God of the dying, of the outcasts, of the rejected, of the abused, which could be a reason why God wanted them to be in this situation into the desert in the first place. What this story really should show us today is that it should give us some hope because God did not send Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert to die, but he brought them out there to be brought back to him, to give them what they needed, to give them what they needed more than anything else into the world. He gave Hagar a drink of water. He answered Ishmael's prayers and he answers us too in this wasteland and in this desert that we find ourselves in too. And he sent this into the world to repair the broken families that we find ourselves in and into the barren deserts that we find ourselves in to change lives and bring about grace. And on hot sand and without water in this desert, that is where God decided to bring an abundant amount of grace to his people. Really, God has a plan for his people. And it might happen in ways that we can't quite understand either. And these tough and in these somewhat disturbing sections of scripture that we have for us today at the dinner table and also in the desert, God brought about a bunch of grace and he brought about a bunch of blessings. At the banquet feast of the lamb in the heaven, there's going to be a lot of bought and redeemed sinners who are going to be sitting at the table with Christ. They're going to be skin and bones broken from the world. But what they won't be doing is they won't be complaining about how hard they had it. They'll just be so thankful for how good they have it now in heaven with their savior who did exactly what they needed to have happened to them and brought exactly what they needed grace for them. And that's how our good, merciful, faithful, and loving God works for his people. And he always really does have a plan for his people here on earth. Amen. <laughs>